the late British theologian Leslie Newbegin is credited with the coining of a phrase that describes the often debated uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Newbegin called it the scandal of particularity. The scandal of particularity. And by that phrase, Newbegin was referencing the offensive theological idea that the God of the entire universe would establish a particular relationship with a particular Hebrew people living in a particular portion of the world in a particular period of human history for the purpose of raising up a particular Messiah who would offer a particular salvation through a particular experience of death and resurrection. The scandal of particularity. And quite honestly, I've always been drawn to that phrase, the scandal of particularity, largely, I suppose, because of my strong belief in what I would describe as the uniqueness of Jesus. And I've been thinking this week about the way in which the New Testament describes that uniqueness of Jesus in so many dramatic and um, specific ways. In the New Testament, for example, we have this book called Colossians, and in that book we are told that Christ Jesus was the image of the invisible God and that in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in, the, in the New Testament we find the Gospel of John in which we are told that Jesus is the Word made flesh and the light of the world. and the Lamb of God who would take away the world's sin. And then we have this book in the New Testament, Philippians, in which we find these wonderful words of poetry about Jesus. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count that as something to be grasped or exploited, but emptied himself. Being born in human likeness and becoming obedient, even to the point of death on a cross, and now highly exalted so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, and every tongue confess his lordship. And in my, in my hermeneutical arrogance, and I suppose there is plenty of that, I so long to be able to take everything that the New Testament says about the uniqueness of Jesus and fit it into these brief linear equations in a way that would make the theological mathematics of Jesus' uniqueness easier to understand. It won't surprise you to hear that I do not have the wherewithal to do that. And yet, while I might not be able to equationize my convictions or even fully comprehend them, there is something in my soul that compels me to believe in the uniqueness of Jesus. And the Christian church historically has believed in that uniqueness as well. In fact, at the heart of the Christian creed is this affirmation that God was uniquely and definitively incarnated in the person of Jesus and that through his life and ministry and death and resurrection, God was uniquely and definitively at work to redeem a groaning world that God stubbornly refuses to abandon. To put it as simply as I can put it, Jesus is really the only truly unique portion of the church's story.
Many of the other good things that we say you would find said in many other religions. Jesus represents the scandal of particularity. And it should be noted that this scandal of particularity, which is to say the uniqueness of Jesus, is often a cause of celebration in the life of an individual believer and certainly, certainly in the ministry of the church. And yet, and with Christian history, there always seems to be an and yet. And yet, throughout its history, the church has often chosen to weaponize the scandal of particularity against those who, for whatever reason, could not bring themselves to embrace it. So that instead of being a joyful and life-giving affirmation of faith, the uniqueness of Jesus becomes fuel for hatred and a rationale for emotional and sometimes even physical violence. It is true, after all, that our history is stained with the blood of those who have been killed in the name of Jesus. It is true that our history reeks with the stench of a pervasive anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, much of which is grounded, sad to say, much of which is grounded in the militarization of our Christology, the militarization of our theology about Jesus. The institution of slavery has its roots in an ethos of Christian imperialism and triumphalism, as does the mistreatment and displacement of this nation's indigenous people. And no scripture, friends, no scripture has figured into that effort more prominently than the scripture that we heard this morning from John's Gospel. A passage of scripture in which we find Jesus in conversation with his concerned and even fearful disciples as he tries to encourage them concerning their ministry, their future ministry, after he is gone. And one of the disciples, in the midst of that spirit of concern, speaks out, how will we know the way? Jesus, after you are gone, how will we know the way? And it is that context, and context is so critically important in the interpretation of Scripture. But it is in that context that Jesus offers this response. How will you know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, in fact, except through me. In so many ways, that scripture is an encapsulation, isn't it, of the scandal of particularity related to Jesus. And over the years, the church has frequently isolated that scripture and treated it not as a joyful affirmation of some of the redemptive things that God has accomplished in Jesus, but instead the church has utilized it as a justification for the mistreatment and frequently the rejection of those who do not embrace the Lordship of Jesus. And friends, here's the danger of that, and I suspect you know this already from your own life's experience, but the danger of, of utilizing Scripture in that way, the danger of weaponizing Scripture in that way, is that when we do, Scripture becomes part of the foundation of a cold philosophy of who is in and who is out. 
And in that philosophy, the church plays the role of arbiter of people's eternal destinations. And quite frankly, that has never been a good look for the church throughout its history, ever. And I have to believe, I hope you believe, but I have to believe that Jesus had something different than that in mind. When he spoke these important words, intending them to be words of encouragement to concerned and fearful disciples. I am the way, the truth, and the life. How will you know the way? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When Jesus declared, I am the way, might he have been making reference to the way of boundary-breaking love? The way that he illuminated so frequently throughout his ministry in which case the implication would be that anybody of any religion or even no religion who is practicing boundary-breaking love is actually participating in the way of Jesus whether they name it that way or not. When Jesus declares, I am the truth, might he have been making reference to the truth of God's character that he incarnated, in which case the implication would be that anybody of any religion or of no religion that is reflecting any portion of the character of God is actually participating in the truth of Jesus, whether they name it that way or not. When Jesus declared, I am the life, might he have been making reference to that transformed, eternal, high-impact pilgrimage that God was making possible for the world through Jesus so that the implication would be anybody of any religion or no religion who is participating in the way of boundary-breaking love, which is Jesus' way, and the truth of God's character, which is Jesus' truth, is also participating in the eternal life that Jesus came into this world to illuminate, whether they describe it that way or not. And then one more, when Jesus declares no one comes to the Father except through me, might it have been the case, friends, might it have been the case that Jesus was not establishing a theological framework that would enable us to determine who is in and who is out, but rather declaring an expansive salvation in which all persons are being graciously wooed toward the heart of God through the way and the truth and the life that Jesus incarnated. If any of that is true, I know that's some heady stuff to be thinking about on a Sunday morning. But if any of that is true, and I cannot stand here and insist that it is, but if any of that is true, then the scandal of particularity, which is to say the uniqueness of Jesus, becomes an impetus for approaching the world differently. Not as a battlefield to be theologically conquered and defended against, but dare I say it, as this mission field, 
of multiple religions and myriad souls, all of whom are seeking and perhaps even partially engaging the way and the truth and the life that we believe to be Jesus. And by the way, none of that, none of that reduces either the uniqueness of who Jesus is or the urgency of living him and sharing him. In fact, quite the contrary, it elevates that uniqueness and that urgency. But here's the best part. It removes from our job description the responsibility of management and supervision. And that is a really good thing. So in the semester, the college semester that I spent in London, I lived in an international, host an international hostel across from Hyde Park, in which I was the only American. And during those months of living in that space, I uh, developed a friendship with a young man whose name was Musalam. Musalam was a Muslim from Somalia. And we would get into these, we were drawn to one another, and, and so we would get into these good conversations about religion and theology and faith and family and life. Conversations that at that point as a 20-year-old I had not experienced in other settings. And I don't remember all of those conversations, but there's one that stands out in my memory. And we were sitting at one of the long tables. This hostel had a dining room. And there were these long tables, and we were sitting across from one another. And we were talking about this very passage of Scripture. John, more specifically, chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Musalam had heard that verse referenced in a television show the day before or a couple of days before that conversation. And so he was curious about that. He wanted to know my perspective on that. So we talked about that a little bit. And you can imagine being a Muslim hearing that verse of scripture in isolation. And at one point in our conversation, Musalam said something. And it inspired me to pull out a pen and write it down on one of the napkins at the table. And then I recopied it to the journal that I was keeping later on because I did not want to forget it. I'm not sure that I fully understood it but I sensed that he was saying something important. And this is what he said in that conversation after we had talked about that verse of scripture. He said, Eric, I'm, I'm just wondering, it's just a thought, I might not be right. But if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him, if there's any truth to that, then maybe that means, maybe that means, he said, that Jesus will not rest until the Muslim and the Jew and the Christian and the atheist all have an opportunity to respond to the goodness of God's heart. And as I look back on that conversation, it occurs to me that it took a Muslim to help this young Christian to reframe the scandal of particularity. Which is to say it took a Muslim to help this young Christian to recognize that the scandal of particularity does not have to be a weapon. And so, siblings, as we gather at the communion table today, 
I'm hoping that you will do some ongoing thinking about this scandal of particularity, but as you come to the table today, I'm hoping and praying that you will see the scandal of particularity, which is to say the uniqueness of Jesus. Not as a rationale for endeavoring to determine who is in and who is out, which is always, quite frankly, way beyond our pay grade. And instead, see the scandal of particularity in Jesus, the uniqueness of Jesus, as an affirmation of faith, and more specifically, an affirmation of a salvation that God is relentlessly offering to a groaning world that God stubbornly refuses to abandon. How will we know the way? Ah, it's okay. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me.